Women Making Waves. Susie, are you actually able to see me? Because you seem to be looking everywhere but at the camera. (laughs) I know it's a bit Mm. odd, actually, that you asked me that question. I suppose after COVID, I then decided that it wasn't enough to just have COVID. I decided to have labyrinthitis. And and apparently it's a thing that people that have had COVID are getting as well. Mm. Or some people, rather. Yeah, it is. Special people like you. Yeah, special people like me Mm -hmm. decide that they not only want to have COVID, but they decide to have something else to consider and... And have that to stay in bed for. Horrible. No, it was. It was I mean, horrible. You were, what were you? All, you were all right for what? A week? Yeah. Less, yeah. I think it was like about. That. Yeah, it was about ten days, and then I started getting dizzy, and feeling sick, and not being able to walk in a straight line. And it was quite <laughs> scary. And it is linked. Apparently, it is linked. Every time I speak to other people and people in medicine, they say, "Yeah, there is some sort of connection between COVID and labyrinthitis." So here I am. That's awful. I know. Awful. So I have to get my son, who is six foot, and he has to walk with me, and I have to hold his arm as I walk down. <laughs> What's it like going upstairs? Then it must be like being yeah. in a storm at sea. Well, I have to sort of lean on the banisters to go up, but I think mm. it will go. I know it will go. I. Know no, and I think I've got to the stage now where I can absolutely manage it now. So mm. yeah, it, it's been. But a bit you're scary. sort of stuck in the house then. Yeah, you've well, been, I can't. I can't you've drive. Been a bit of a rough time, really, yeah, haven't you? Yeah, it's not nice. I know. But in between having these conditions, I did have that moment where you know when you feel after you've had flu or after you've not been well, you feel invincible because you sort of think you're bouncing back. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to completely reorganise my wardrobe. Oh, and wow. that must be a big job in your case, actually, <laughs> mustn't it? I bet you've You're got funny. loads of You're clothes. Funny. Well, I've got loads of shoes. Oh, right. Yeah. And a melder. Yeah, yeah, a melder indeed. Oh, this was a challenge for me. Downsize my shoes, downsize my clothes. And now it's just wonderful. I walk into my... I don't walk in. I open up my wardrobe. <laughs> I'd love to walk into my wardrobe. But I open up my wardrobe and think... It's not cluttered. I can see what I've got. How have you sorted your clothes then? Have you done it in shades? Have, have you started it black at one end and gone to sort of white at the other and all the shades in between? Is that how you've um, well, actually, no, you say you, you say them? black at the beginning. I've gone white at the beginning, virgin okay. white. Wedding <laughs> dress is hanging up at the beginning. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's, it's lovely. There is a really mm-hmm. good app actually as well. You download this app. And you can take pictures of your clothes so that you'll have a log on your phone. So if you want to buy new clothes and you think, oh, do I need that or do I have something that will go with it? And so Mm -hmm. you look on your app and you go through your clothes when you eventually take all the photos all individually of your items. (laughs) And you can then decide if you need that piece of clothing. That's quite cool, isn't it? That sounds like a real killjoy app, to, to be fair. I'm really into it. I've been obsessed now with the wardrobe and I feel so proud of myself that I can actually find something and put it back. But for you, Linda, you've just told me that you are going into work one day a week. I was lucky to get there because, of course, we had the fuel crisis last week where I was nearly at the end of my tank. And that morning when I went into work, I went via the town where I live. The two filling stations were closed. I went round the supermarket and there was no queue and I thought, oh, God, let's give a shot. So I went in, fully open, only about three cars there. (gasps) Fully open. Every nozzle was untagged. Wow. It was all open. And I just went and straight in. Obviously, everyone else was like me. Oh, they won't have it. Straight in, 
filled up my car. The car in front of me, he not only filled up his car, but decided to fill up two Jerry huge cans. containers as well, which actually no. I found slightly annoying. Because mm. I just thought, well, you're just taking all the fuel, aren't you? And somebody else is going to come along eventually and they're not going to get any. But it must have been so liberating to get there and know that you were there and whizzing in and whizzing out probably within 10 minutes. Well, I was stunned. I remember seeing something on the TV recently where they were interviewing the drivers and they interviewed one lady and said, then why are you here? Well, because everyone else is here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, if you're seeking company, it's not the way to do it. No, it join isn't. a club. Yeah, join a join club. Join a club. <laughs> go out there. Go to a coffee morning. Join the WI or something. Don't go to the filling station. It's not that much fun. You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. Louise Etock is joining us today. Now, you might remember Louise. She's been on Women Making Waves before. She's the front woman of Flaming June. She uh, writes the songs and she sings. She's brilliant, actually. And she just learned that she's got ADHD, Susie. Yeah, well, it's it's a brave move, isn't it, in some ways, to recognise that you probably, what Louise has suspected for a long time. And I think it's it's good. Well, she talks about how she was diagnosed, how she's actually found out. And we're speaking as well to Rebecca Champ. Now, Rebecca Champ works with people with ADHD and she's going to be telling us about ADHD because that's her area of expertise and speaking to Louise and telling her about what to expect, having been diagnosed in adulthood. Really interesting. You can listen to our interviews by visiting womenmakingwaves.co.uk. We're going to be talking about ADHD today, and in particular when it's diagnosed in adulthood. We're joined by Louise Etock, who's best known for being the driving force behind the band Flaming June, and who's recently learned that she has ADHD. We're also joined by Rebecca Champ, who's an integrative contemporary clinical psychotherapist and coach, and the executive director of Adaptability. Rebecca says her passion is to help individuals with ADHD discover how to design lives they love to live. Thank you very much for joining us today. Hiya. Thank you for having me. Now, Rebecca, can we start by finding out a little bit about you? You spent some of your high school years in Vicenza in Italy, I believe. Tell us about that. I did. As you may have noticed, Linda, I am not from around here. <laughs> my father was in the American military, and so I've spent about half of my life in Europe and half of my life in the United States. And my four years of high school, we're spent in Vicenza, Italy. Yeah, so it's given me quite a, an interesting experience before the age of 18. I can imagine it would. And you then went on to study history and theatre in New York. Was that choice driven by your time in Italy? It's very arty there, isn't it? It is very arty. And in fact, um, we were treated to quite a lot of fantastic experiences, including uh, being able to graduate in the Teatro Olimpico, which is designed by Andrea Palladio and is quite world famous in terms of the the space uh, as an indoor theatre. But no, the love of theatre came very early when I was about four. Both my parents had studied musical theatre and music education, and we had quite a musical family that was very interested in that kind of expression and communication. And so 
when I went to university, um, I knew, because I did know about the ADHD at the time, that I would need to be engaged in something I loved in order to be able to succeed in university. And so I really wanted to study theatre. Of course, you're about to meet Louise, who is a musician, in fact, so this should be an interesting conversation. (laughs) How did you come to the UK, Rebecca? The first time I came to the UK was actually a study abroad programme in the last semester of my university. So I spent the last four months of my four-year university degree in London, attending probably more theatre than I will ever see in the rest of my life. It was amazing. I will never forget it. It was wonderful. A friend of mine was uh, doing a work-study experience, and he introduced me to a group of his English friends, and through them, I met my husband. And so he came to meet my parents in the U.S., and we were married in the U.S., and we spent four years there. He was employed in IT, and then we discovered that his company had a space here in Cambridge at the Science Park. And so he transferred over and we've been here ever since. And I believe that you were working for the NHS in Cambridge and he was actually diagnosed with ADHD in 2007. Is that right? He was. It's a very interesting story, actually, because in my family, we came across ADHD because my brother was diagnosed at the age of nine. Now, this was back in the 1980s when they really were only looking for hyperactive boys. He really couldn't sit still in a classroom for more than about half an hour to 45 minutes at a time. And because it was identified in him, both myself and my mother discovered that we had it. So we grew up in a family where we understood that we needed to kind of do things a bit differently. But as I said, my father was in the military and we moved every three to four years. So we were never medicated. Medications at the time were quite limited in scope, and it wasn't something that my mother was particularly keen on. So we spent quite a lot of time basically doing quite a lot of coaching with my mother before we understood what coaching was, which was to really discuss your experience, explore what was happening, reflect on what you've done and what you've not done and what you would do better, and try and implement that to the next time you were going to do things. So we talked about this quite a lot growing up and kind of incorporated it into what we were doing, but we didn't really disclose because even now people don't understand it very well, but they really didn't then. So when my husband was uh, working in IT here in Cambridge, um, about two years into that, the tech slump hit and he took voluntary redundancy. And he knew that he could work as a consultant, so he began to try and do that. But while they really enjoyed his work and they thought that his work was very good, all of the admin and finances and business development and things like that started to go really wrong. Uh, And he really began to struggle. And we ended up going to the GP for anxiety and depression, none of which we'd ever had before. And as this progressed, I began to think, this is looking really familiar because my husband has a double degree in physics and electronics, right? He's not, he's not a slouch. Hmm. So at the time, I was working at Addenbrooke's Hospital, and thankfully, they had one of the only adult ADHD research clinics in the country. And I managed to get him in on a project that they were doing and get him seen, and they diagnosed him as inattentive ADHD, which was very different to the hyperactive combined ADHD that you saw in my family. So I thought, fantastic, great, you've got a diagnosis, we'll be able to get some help, that'll be wonderful. And there was nothing. There was nothing in the NHS for adults. There was nothing privately. 
and it would take another, I think it was about 2013, when it was finally recognized as part of the diagnostic process that it continued into adulthood. So you decided to train as a coach and you launched Adventures Within. What was behind that decision? Was it literally that there was just nothing else out there and you thought, right, there's a gap in the market here. We we need to learn more about this. Absolutely. I felt very strongly that, particularly because of what my husband experienced, that there was not a lot, but at least an awareness and support for children. But no one was actually interested in helping adults understand themselves better and to improve what they could do. But there was no official way to become a coach at the time because... Obviously, it wasn't recognized in adults. So I trained as a life coach, and in the process of that, discovered that when adults go through this diagnostic process, it's a whole new understanding of themselves. They really revisit a whole lot about their past and who they are currently, and there's a little bit of a grief process about what their life could have been like if they'd only known. All of this kind of really dramatic journey for them. So I figured counseling skills would probably be really useful in helping with some of that. And as you kind of do with ADHD, I suddenly ended up on a four-year psychotherapy degree. So, so as part of that, I began Adventure Within, which was the first company that I started in coaching and began to just put my services out there as someone who is available to work with individuals. And there weren't very many coaches at the time. And so I was gaining practical work at the same time as I was continuing to train in psychotherapy. I'd like to bring in Louise to the conversation. Now, we know you on Women Making Waves as the front woman of Flaming June. Brilliant singer and songwriter. Absolutely love you and your work. Is this sounding a bit familiar to you, some of the things that Rebecca's saying? And, and how, did you, how did you come to be diagnosed? Similar in a way, I guess, because uh, I have two daughters and my eldest daughter already had a diagnosis for autistic spectrum disorder. But at the age of 16, she was given an additional diagnosis of inattentive ADHD. And I remember going to this appointment with her and the uh, the doctor sort of mentioning ADHD. And I was thinking, absolutely not. She doesn't have ADHD because I had that preconceived idea that ADHD was hyperactive boys. But when he described what inattentive ADHD was and she did the questionnaire, her answers were exactly what my answers would have been. And he showed us the kind of shape this made on this questionnaire. And he was like, that's a classic inattentive ADHD profile and she was diagnosed and treated and the difference it made to her was unbelievable. It took me about two years to go through the process of of getting my diagnosis which I got a year ago and I, I don't really think I've still fully processed that to be honest but yeah so again it was through a family member being given the diagnosis that made me think, oh, hang on a minute, this is sounding awfully familiar. Yeah, I was going to ask you how you reacted when you got your diagnosis, but it sounds to me like you had a, a very high suspicion based on the fact that you were just like your doctor and you were coming up with the same answer. Yeah, definitely. I don't know, because it's come so late. I still question it sometimes, but I think that's quite normal. But yeah, I think like to get it so late in life, it's quite tricky because I think you've you've already learned some pretty unhelpful coping strategies, which is hard to unlearn the older you are. So, is that what you find, Rebecca? That with, with people coming to you like Louise, is this sounding very familiar to you? Absolutely, it's a bit of a humorous thing that I talk about quite a lot in saying that uh, 
very often parents will have received uh, information from professionals to say that their child needs a diagnosis. And their response often is, oh, they can't have ADHD because they're exactly like me. <laughs> <laughs> and then about two months to a year later, I get a phone call and the adult says, oh, my, my child has been diagnosed and I, I'd really like to investigate some of this about myself. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, it's always a fascinating journey. And you're absolutely right, Louise, that there is quite a lot of, particularly with women, social acceptance for a lot of what are actually ADHD symptoms. So things like being a bit scatterbrained or a bit emotional or, you know, being quite chatty or expressive are all sort of things that can be masked because they're considered socially acceptable for women. Um, mm -hmm. So inattentive men and inattentive women are very difficult to diagnose because of this very often. What are the traits then? For someone like me, who's not terribly familiar with ADHD, are there, are there a kind of set of traits? Well, I mean, the standard traditional diagnosis includes three areas. So it's hyperactivity, impulsivity, and distractibility. But usually they're focused on a lot of the challenges that ADHDers face. So when I do a, uh, an assessment with the people that I work with, I ask them a series of questions about their experiences, particularly around things like how they experience time, because the ADHD experience of time is very, very different to what we call neurotypicals, because neurotypicals actually have a felt sense of time passing. So because our brain is wired differently, it's kind of like a, a biological tick so you can actually feel the distance between now and two weeks from now, which if you think about that, that makes it much easier for being able to do planning and prioritizing because you kind of have a felt sense of that distance. ADHDers do not. We experience time as now or not now. And when it's not now, it's not very urgent and not very important. And when it's now, everything is urgent and important. And so that makes using traditional time management techniques and skills really difficult because the experience is very different. Some of the other things I ask are about things like comfort with risk. And I say comfort with risk because when you talk to quite a lot of adults and you mention risk, the first thing they say is, oh no, I'm quite risk averse. You know, I'm really careful about things that are very risky and, and you know, I'm not an adrenaline junkie and I don't jump out of planes and or ride motorcycles or I never took drugs or you know, anything like that. But what, when I, I kind of adjust it and say, but, you know, if the risk is calculated, are you quite happy to kind of, you know, <laughs> spur of the moment spontaneously, grab a backpack and, and travel to Europe if that seems like a good idea? And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I did that when I was in my early 20s, you know, didn't know where I was going. But, you know, it was pretty comfortable. Yeah. Comfort with calculated risk. <laughs> um, so there's some really interesting stories that come out of that. We talk about distractibility in terms of environments. So are there some environments that you feel really difficult, you know, it's harder for you to focus, like busy and noisy pubs or open plan offices, or sometimes, I don't know if you remember, in grocery stores when flat screen televisions first came out, mm. and they had them kind of on the high shelves in Tesco when you walked around. I really struggled when they first put those in because it caught my attention so quickly mm. that I, I had to really limit the time I spent inside the grocery store because it was terribly, terribly distracting and overwhelming. One of the biggest ones that's not actually part of the criteria 
but is really, really key is emotional regulation. That's not only about kind of the ups and downs. So it's really quite common for ADHD to get misdiagnosed as bipolar because of these ups and downs or extremes in mood that ADHDers experience. One of the best stories I heard was from a friend of mine who was talking to a psychiatrist when he was getting his diagnosis, and the psychiatrist said, do you experience depression? And my friend said, oh yes, there are days when it's very hard, and I can't get out of bed, and I really struggle to be motivated, and it's just really, really hard. And he said, hmm. He said, then if your friends came over that evening and invited you down to the pub, would you go with them, and, and would you be able to? He's like, oh yeah, we get down, we'd have a great time, really pick up my mood, it'd be really helpful. And the psychiatrist said, you do not have bipolar. <laughs> You're not depressed. This is a ADHD. <laughs> and Louise, I can hear you laughing at some of this. How are you reacting to this? Yeah, is this you? Um, <laughs> it is totally me. And I think with um, the songwriting, that's me kind of trying to process often extreme things. Well, that they felt extreme to me. Um, it's a way of processing them because I think for me, the ADHD personality is like an all or nothing personality. Like I'll either do something at 200% effort or I won't do it. That kind of middle ground seems to be missing in my brain. But for me, like songwriting has given me the ability to process those extreme emotions and put them in a way that I can manage them. Otherwise, I don't know what I'd do if I didn't have that outlet to channel that extreme sort of yeah, it's not as you said. I think when we spoke last time, Linda, it's not it's not the kind of thing you can talk to over a, with a coffee. It's like yeah. it's too uh, what's the word intense. So for me, songwriting's given me that outlet. Is, mm. is this something, Rebecca, that other people that you've met with ADHD are, are they finding an outlet in things like art and music and writing, a way of expressing themselves? There is quite a strong thread of creativity in ADHD and ADHD expression. And uh, part of that actually has been evidenced by some of the neuroimaging because when your brain is at rest, it does what they call mind wandering. You switch on what's called your default mode network. And when you're doing your mind wandering, that's also a place where you have a lot of creativity and imagination and things like that. And in, in neurotypicals, when you go to do a task, that will switch off. So they will switch from their default mode network into their task positive networks. ADHDers never quite switch that mind wandering off. It tends to continue sort of happening in the background. So there seems to be a very strong theme of creativity. I've spoken to quite a lot of theatrical professionals, musicians, uh, visual artists, but also performers, very active physical performers who like to go and dance or do improvisational performance, that kind of thing. Have you any questions, Louise, that you want to ask Rebecca? Loads, actually. <laughs> Absolutely loads of questions. I feel like I'm quite newly diagnosed and and I feel for me, I've got to unlearn a lot of things that I've been doing to cope, which are probably not that helpful. Yeah, I just it's finding a way to feel that that middle, the middle ground, really, as I say, sort of, I feel like there's like, if you're going from A to B with ideas, I feel like I've got the end point and the starting point, but the how to get there point doesn't exist. <laughs> in my head <laughs> uh, so it's just like what strategies are there out there for reprogramming your brain I suppose well the first thing I always tell everyone that I work with is it's really important to become aware of what's happening with your neurobiology so 
how important it is that you're interested in what you're doing and what happens when you're not interested because that's when things can feel like there actually requires a lot of extra effort. That doesn't necessarily mean the task is hard, but the, the perceived effort of it is extremely difficult. And the feeling of that can actually become a barrier. And so beginning to be aware of not only whether or not you've got that additional help from your interest, but what it is about it that's making it feel really difficult. Because ADHD is a diagnosis of impairment, so it's very contextual. Because that means that in some context, you have enough interest and you're engaged and you can do the task without a problem. But sometimes there's a problem with the interest or the task is particularly challenging and therefore you feel like you can't do it or you're not sure how to be successful at it. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's really important to begin to get a sense of the context of which tasks are difficult for you and which ones are particularly challenging. Now, there's a common theme to these, which usually is that they're very cognitive. So they require things like planning, prioritizing, organization, what uh, a lot of the literature calls executive function tasks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But also things that are what we call maintenance tasks. So things that need to be done exactly the same way over and over and over again every time over long periods of time. And these tasks, they might be interesting the first time, but after that, they're not interesting anymore. <laughs> and it's really difficult to keep doing. Um, and we love projects, right? Anything that you can start and you can really intensely focus on and then you've finished it and you feel accomplished and yay, fantastic, that's great. Yeah, maintenance tasks yeah. are like death. They are. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> yeah, really, really difficult to actually continue to do. So being able to identify those and understand that there's neurobiological reason why this is difficult for me to do. It's not a moral failing. It's not because I'm lazy. You know, I mean, nobody wants to do these, right? They're certainly not fun, but it's not like I'm really avoiding them because I'm a horrible person and just don't want to do hard work. That's not true. And mm. that's a big myth about ADHD and particularly how peers and partners and parents and authority figures can interpret the behaviors. It can cause a lot of stigma and can therefore result in ADHDers experiencing a lot of low self-esteem. That's true. And I think it feeds into the kind of um, gender stereotypes and the fact that as a woman, you're supposed to be good at running a house. <laughs> Or, you know, historically, well, if you have ADHD, well, in my experience, you're absolutely no good at running a house whatsoever. And as you say, that does feed into your self-esteem. Absolutely. So not only are those maintenance tasks quite difficult to maintain, but ADHDers tend to fall in love with ideas. That mm -hmm. means we have lots and lots of interests. That means we start lots and lots of things. We buy all <laughs> so of the materials true. and all of the equipment and all of the things that we need to do the project. And then we get halfway through and either we don't find it interesting anymore or we run into a problem that's too complicated or we get distracted by something else that's more interesting. And so you end up with piles of these unfinished projects in your space <laughs> that you feel really guilty about getting rid of because you really should be an adult and you should finish them, but you can engage with them. So it's this kind of catch-22 that not only is it kind of difficult to maintain a space, but we often fill it with things that we really love that then we don't finish. 
<laughs> this is so true. <laughs> Louise, you've written a song about your diagnosis called Paralyze Me Where I Stand. It's brilliant. Oh, uh, well, yes, exactly. And one talking about um, how time is viewed, I think the, the opening lyric to the chorus is everything is now, the future and the past. And that's it's, it's, that is honestly how it feels. It feels like... I feel like for my whole life I've been like surfing on the crest of a wave and I've had to keep balancing on this on this wave you know that's that's how it feels and and it gets exhausting a few years of doing that if it's okay we can maybe play that song after this interview mm-hmm. so people can hear it it feels like a very personal piece actually did the knowledge of knowing you'd ADHD trigger these? Like, and that's, this is a really stupid question. Of course, they did. Didn't they? Well, I kind of, well, I wrote it actually before I got my official diagnosis, and I've looked back over lyrics that I've written over the years as well. And there's so many of them that you could think, oh, well, that's ADHD. You know, they're littered all over the place. But, but this one, um, you know, I just tried to express that just frenetic kind of everything coming at you, and you can't differentiate it or box it up it's all this just coming at you and that overwhelming feeling I just tried to capture it in in a song I think you're going to be very interested to hear this Rebecca this song I would love to it sounds amazing (laughs) now if somebody is listening and they think that they might have ADHD which and I'm now I'm now thinking might be me actually ladies (laughs) how do What do they do? What do they do next, Rebecca? How do they go about getting a diagnosis? Well, I will tell you, Linda, that the prevalence is quite high. So when I teach (laughs) courses, at the moment I'm teaching at the University of Cambridge, and uh, one of the first things I tell them is the prevalence of ADHD, and it is quite high, and it's somewhere between uh, 1 in 20. And so I usually have between 10 and 15 people in that classroom. And so I will say, now I know I'm ADHD, and inevitably someone will come and see me or will start looking funny and say, well, doesn't everybody experience this? No. Diagnosis process is, is unfortunately, there are quite a long waiting list. But the first step is to actually approach your GP and let them know that you are interested in receiving a diagnosis. There are some tools that can help with that. Not all GPs are sometimes aware, uh, particularly in the women's expression, because male and female, whether you're inattentive or not, is actually different. So they're not always familiar with women's expression. So having some assessment tools, which you can find on the internet, or there is some of the tests that you can get online are not definitive, but they can kind of help. But you approach your GP, you let them know that you would like to engage in the diagnostic process, and they will refer you to the adult ADHD clinic for an assessment. Now, you can, if you prefer a speedier or quicker assessment, do it privately. But I would encourage everyone who is after a diagnosis to do the two processes simultaneously, because you can get caught out by having a private diagnosis not be recognised by a GP and therefore not be able to get treatment on the NHS. It sounded like what you went through, Louise, because you said it took a long time. I initially went through the NHS and they said to me, which I found a little bit ridiculous, but they said, I have all the traits of ADHD, but they're not going to give me a diagnosis because they didn't know me when I was a child. This is the adult ADHD team. (laughs) So in the end, I did have to go privately, unfortunately, uh, because I knew in myself, I knew what the answer was. But for some reason, I think for my self-esteem, I wanted an official diagnosis. But Mm -hmm. I would encourage anyone who is seeking a diagnosis, you don't have to have a diagnosis to 
join a support group or speak to people online. I mean, TikTok has just exploded if you're, if you're interested in social media. Apparently, there's a, a huge community on TikTok talking about experiences. Facebook has several ADHD communities that you can join. So there's quite a lot on social media and plenty of people are quite happy to ask questions or just share their experiences. So you should be able to find some things while you're going through this process. And if someone wants to get in touch with you, Rebecca, how would they go about doing that? So I have my website, which is rebeccachamp.co.uk. And we also do run a support group in Cambridge once a month, which is currently because of COVID uh, running online. So if you're interested in joining that and coming to speak to us, if you just send an email, there's a form on the website. Because I'm doing my PhD, I have a reduced number of clients that I'm taking on. However, I have started a Patreon. And on that Patreon, you can sign up. It's a very, very minimal monthly fee. But I am posting there with videos. I'm also adding worksheets. And I do a monthly live question and answer session. So those are the best ways to get a hold of me at the moment. Oh, fantastic. And Louise, we're about to play Paralyze Me Where I Stand. But Mm -hmm. how can people find out more about what you do as a musician? You can find me online at flamingjunemusic.com or on all the social media networks at Flaming June UK. This has been absolutely fascinating and quite honestly, I could go on chatting for hours about this. Thank you very much, Rebecca Champ and Louise Etock. It's a high-speed train and it's coming towards me Can't get out of the way, can't tell my story There's a high-speed train, it's coming towards me Can't get out of the way, can't heed the warning There's a heart on fire, coming towards me Can't get out of the way, can't tell my story There's a heart on fire, coming towards me Can't get out of the way, can't heed the warning Everything is now, the future and the past A dream out loud, the self-doubt comes fast To paralyze me where I stand Paralyze me where I stand Everything is now, the future and the past A dream out loud, the self-doubt comes fast To paralyze me where I stand Paralyze me where I stand
You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. 